Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support ska music. Thanks. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. If there's one band that's defied every single 90s ska punk stereotype, it is Chicago's Blue Meanies. They played a style of music closer to Mr. Bungle than Real Big Fish, and they were jaw-droppingly proficient musicians and kind of terrifying. Their two 90s indie LPs, Kiss Your Ass Goodbye and Full Throttle, are legendary albums from this era. So today we dig into Blue Meanies' full story with singer Billy Spunk, and guitarist Sean Dolan, and go into the many crevices of the band's career, including their jump to major label MCA with Postwave. Strap in. This is a long and interesting episode. Blue Meanies are such a good band, and for years, I was terrified of them. <laughs> like, the first time I ever saw them was at the Scoggins Racism Tour in Las Vegas, and I, for, like, most of their set, I lingered out in the lobby <laughs> yeah, I remember I remember seeing them live in San Francisco. Um I want to say they played Slims, but I'm not 100% sure. And I remember they had like a weird van. Do you remember that? I don't. Yeah, it was, I feel like it was some kind of camper van thing. And I remember I was really into the band. They they were amazing. And then after the set, I think cuz probably I was with Mike, I got to go meet them. I was so intimidated, like so particularly intimidated because they were such an intense live band, but they were just like, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Yeah, <laughs> I can I can remember loading out from uh, the Fireside Bowl and, and Billy was holding the door open and he just goes, hi, Adam. <laughs> and I, I was like, one, it was the dude from Blue Meanies. So that was scary enough. But then I was like, how does he know my name? <laughs> So Sean is um, Sean is in the uh, in defense of ska discord. He posted a few uh, potential stories that he was going to tell that he ha- hasn't yet. So I'm going to throw one at the two of you guys. Oh God! And uh, see what you what, see see what we hear. Do we hit a buzzer or something? Because they're like, <laughs> <laughs> just t- just tell us what you remember. Yeah. So it says, 
He wrote, Meanies Invade Australia, Billy Sparks Riot, and learns why Blink, learns what Blink-182 thinks of you. Wow. Which one do you want to start with? That was John wrote that. So yeah, they've got a Discord uh, setup, Bill, where where uh, they invited me to to tell some blue mini stories, uh, and I, I posted some potential topics, and I have not actually written up any of the stories yet. So this is a good one. Your 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 uh, sparking of a riot in Australia was the the first one, and then uh, learning what Tom DeLong actually thought of the blue minis. Which you may or may not remember, but it was a very short and brief moment, which just made me laugh. Well, I I remember the riot, and without a doubt, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, to be honest. Um, I have a friend gave me heard about the story. He was um he's a, he was a Swiss artist, and he sent me a brick. Um, to 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 remember the riot, but the brick was painted gold, and I think the the uh, symbolism was is you know it was that riot which really put us on the map in Australia. You know MTV co- covered it and all that, but uh, it was a it was terrible. I got hit in the head with something. It was, most likely it was a water bottle, but a but a brick sounds better. I actually saw I actually saw the projectile strike you. So I, I know I remember what it was. So so before the it was I think there was four bands on the show. It was in a town called was it Sutherland, Australia? I believe that's right. Yes, which is our notorious surf town, I believe. And um, there was four bands on the bill. We were third uh, directly before Frenzel Rom. It was definitely their show. People were there to see Frenzel Rom. And the two bands that. Um, played before us, you know, they took it from the crowd. You know, the crowd was throwing water bottles at them and just, you know, that was what they did. That was part of the show. That was how, you know, the audience participated. And I just thought it was so ridiculous that the bands would just perform and just dodge projectiles the whole time. So I said something about it, which I don't even want to say what I said. Do you remember what I said, Sean? I, I have a vague <laughs> recollection. Uh, I, the exact words fail me, but it was basically... You you taunted them for being shithead losers. Yeah, I think it was pathetic excuses for punk rock. <laughs> there, that's what it was: pathetic excuses for punk rock, which caused more projectiles than ever to start coming our way. I mean, garbage cans and everything, water bottles and shoes, and it was hard to play. I don't think we got through like three or four songs. Yeah. So so what I remember is. I was to your left, slightly behind you, and Jim and Jim and John Paul, of course, were kind of in front of me. But it was a big stage, um, and I was just kind of hanging in the back. Not, not, I wasn't hiding behind John or Jim by any means, but I was far enough back that I, I could see stuff coming. That, that's the point. I could see stuff coming, so I could get out of the way. Um, you guys that were right up front were not in that position to like be able to dodge something. But I remember uh, we were finishing a song. And it was almost to the end of the note. I don't remember what song, but it was an orange juice bottle. And I watched it sail like a line drive and pow, right into Bill's eye. Yeah. Blood, blood. I mean, you just went down and just crumpled to the floor and you know, blood wow. everywhere. You know, this, this bottle actually kind of broke. And I remember watching it kind of spin. That's in my memory. The bottle spinning on the floor afterwards. 
I've never heard that. Yeah, we all just, that was it. We just got off stage. And it was more than that. They escorted us off stage and, and security. Around, yeah. yeah, security took us to the back, some back hallways, and were like trying to get us out of there. But before they could do that, the paramedics had to come and work on my face and see, uh, you know, if I was okay. So I remember, and then they, I remember they took us away. We were legitimately worried yeah, that we were going to get our, our, our passes handed to us. Yeah, we were scared. We were scared. But that never happened. And then MTV covered it. And uh, it was great. There's some great video footage of the paramedics working on my face. There's two, two Australian paramedics. My eyes swollen. There's blood. And um, the speaking of J-Bot, who we were just chatting up, you know, before um, we went live here, he wrote a version of the Star Spangled Banner called the Star Strangled Banner. This is way back in the Pave the World EP. It's like a bonus track. And there's video of myself getting worked on, worked on by the paramedics right after that incident. And the, the soundtrack is J-Bot's Star Strangled Banner. It's really, it's really eerie. It's super eerie. So I remember after that, they took us away and... Um, there was probably a there was some there was probably a big uh, you know like drowned in your sorrows party after that. But I remember getting up the next morning and the question had arose is if they were going to send us back to America if the if the tour was over. But that didn't happen. We kept going. So I played the rest of the shows with a you know basically a massive black eye and had to worry. I, I was worried for my pretty much for my life <laughs> because Australia is a rough place. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think the, the part we're skipping over the story too, they're, they're like, you know, the, these kids, uh, if they, they stick around for the show and Frenzel puts on a great show as every night. I mean, they're, they're just the tightest, you know, uh, most amazing pop punk band I've ever heard, but they, they put on a great show and the kids kind of calm down. But uh, what I remember is afterwards they, they went to the train station and trashed the train station completely and did like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of damage. So like, yeah, we, we were, we, we inadvertently, you know, you know, uh, caused quite a bit of property damage and uh, insurrection. And I, I believe uh, punk rock shows were, were forbidden after that in, in, in Sutherland, Australia. I didn't know that. That's, that's, a, wow. That's a new fact to me, but yeah. <laughs> what did Tom DeLong say about you guys? Yeah, how how does the Tom DeLong uh, part of the story work out? Well, see that he had no idea. Uh, he's not connected to that uh, riot story. It was just oh, okay. we showed up and um, they were actually on tour in Australia at the same time, and their sound guy was there, and I think his name was was it Big Z? Uh, I think that was his name, and he was just kind of hanging out with us. We were in we were in Melbourne. And he showed up. Uh, I don't know how he heard we were around, but some somebody he found us, and we were chatting with him. And and uh, and uh, he came to our show later that night. And uh, all he said, and this kind of goes back to what Adam and I were talking about last night. Um, but all all he said, uh, he went back and he told Tom DeLong that we were there. And, you know, these guys, you know, same booking agent, whatever. Were you know, I, I don't know how well we ever knew them. But it would have been, you know, I, I, if I, if I had been in, you know, aware of like, you know, people that, you know, or are connected to, yeah, we maybe try to go see a show, you know, hang out, get to meet them, whatever. Uh, but apparently uh, Big Z asked Tom, you want to go see the Blue Meanies? And he goes, 
uh, are they still scaring all the kids? <laughs> so that was his answer was no. So apparently Tom, apparently Tom DeLong is maybe not our best fan out there. But. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of a compliment. I yeah, like it is it. kind of. Yeah, yeah. He's not wrong. No, he's not. Yeah. I, um, I like the idea of a young Tom DeLong seeing blue meanies at some point and being terrified. Yeah, that's kind of funny. <laughs> There were a couple of shows with Blink-182 um, in SoCal, I believe, and they were very sparsely attended. I mean, like literally like 20 people in some couple of bars w- way back when. Did know? they open for the Meanies? Because uh, I wasn't no, there. No, obviously. they didn't. Well, okay. probably. They, everyone does. Most yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, their, on their way to fame. Well, the, the list of bands that have opened for the Blue Meanies and are much more famous than us is pretty long. <laughs> Welcome at to fame. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So the Blue Meanies begins in 1989 in Carbondale. Is this a J J Vance or J Bot? He starts this project initially. He does. Yeah, this is Jay's project. Um, Jay hunted me down to. Um, to be in his band at that time I was getting ready to graduate college and I was not interested in being in bands and I was avoiding phone calls from Jay. He was leaving them on my answering machine. And then he finally cornered me at a party and uh, I couldn't say no. So that, that's how it started. Uh, And so then at that time, you know, Sean wasn't in the band, but Sean and I were friends and, you know, used to, hang out in my heart in my house and party. And, you know, Sean was in a band and I was in some earlier bands and we all played in the same little crappy clubs in Carbondale, Illinois. And your basement, you had, you had a basement show thing going on. You had, you had gigs in your basement every so often. Yeah. Yeah. So Jay presents, he says, you got to join my band. This is what it's going to be. How does he present the band um, concept? Well, I don't remember exactly how we presented the concept, but I do remember the basement. We played in a little basement and what happened in that basement. And Jay was like immediately the influences we talked about were the specials and Fishbone. Fishbone, I believe, had just played in Carbondale and really was a, um, for the people who were at that show, Fishbone really blew everyone's minds. It was like the Truth and Soul tour, and they were on top of their game at that point. So Fishbone was a big um, influence for Jay and for me. But the real, you know, what people don't realize is Jay was a, a huge fan of like 70s funk. So bands like mm-hmm. Tower of Power and uh, Sly and the Family Stone were, were that was Jay's jam. Jay loved it. Of course, you know he was, you know, a, he, you know, could slap the bass at that time and, and like to uh, to show off. <laughs> That's kind of how it started. It was like, you know, just like just playing in the in the in the basement, you know. And uh, I think one of the first songs were uh, "It Doesn't Matter," the ska song, uh, just a straight ahead two tone mm-hmm. ska song. So that came from, you know, came from Jay. Uh, and then there were, in the early years, there were definitely a lot of more funky stuff that went over well in the, with college kids in the bars. So, Sean, you remember, did you see the first show or did you see just a really, really early shows? So, yeah, I, I don't think I saw what maybe first show, but so, so uh, Dave Lund and I, uh, so Dave was also in the Blue Meanies, a bass, one of the bass player after Jay quit, but that's that's fast forward but uh, for the moment just know that dave and i uh, both grew up in carbondale 
And we had moved to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, kind of on a lark. Uh, his, his mom was going to graduate school there. And uh, we both wanted to move away from Carbondale because it's a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but, you know, why Madison? It just kind of happened. But anyway, we had, we had come back for a friend's wedding. And um, it happened to be that weekend that Bill and Jay and the original, original Blue Meanies were playing a, a basement show. And I don't remember which basement it was, probably just one of those, you know, party houses on Beverage Street or whatever. Um, but that was the full on funky Blue Meanies, you know, uh, I don't know, almost Chili Peppers-esque kind of sound. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I remember standing up close and watching uh, the original Blue Meanies uh, with uh, Kendall on the drums. And uh, okay, the keyboard player was named Seth. Seth. Yeah. Wow. Listen, listen to my memory. And uh, that's, so that even, that even predates uh, Tony Amoni and, and maybe Jim was Jim, Jim playing with you guys at that point. No, probably. We had this metal guitar player named Chuck for a while. That Chuck. Was Chuck. Yeah. Chuck. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there was any horns. There was no horns at the time, or maybe there was some like, no, I don't remember a horn. I don't remember a horn, but yeah, it, it was all just kind of funky party music. And you were wearing that Fez hat. Yeah, the Fez hat. And, you know, and I was just thinking, uh, you know, there was a song that Jay wrote uh, for his, like, he, he studied jazz in college and he wrote a song for a thesis or something. It was called Too Much Shit. And it was this song that starts off just like this straight ahead yeah. jazz tune and then would go into hardcore and then we just go back and forth. And the the jazz portions would get shorter and the hardcore portions would get longer <laughs> as the song progressed and at the end it's just jay screaming too much shit over the <laughs> hardcore thing and everybody loved the song <laughs> i loved it I, I remember you guys playing that i do remember that for sure that uh, that song is very memorable yeah that was like you know you'd be this jazz thing and people would be just like chilling after we play some chili pepper song and then um that jazz thing would happen people would be just like chilling and the hardcore thing would just literally terrify people like people would jump and i think that was maybe the first time we it was sort of interesting to be able to scare people, catch people off guard, set them up and catch them off guard and then scare them. And that, I guess that's the uh, theme of this interview right now. Is, <laughs> you wanted more. <laughs> and I'm just realizing that right now. This is great. How many ways can we scare the children? <laughs> <laughs> Were you mostly playing like uh, kind of like college parties or what were the kind of main kind of gigs? Yeah, they were like, uh, you know, not so much like college parties, like frat parties. They'd be like, there was a really great underground uh, music scene in Carbondale, Illinois, where like people who had basements put on cool shows sure. and lots of really cool underground garagey bands would came out of it. Mm-hmm. So there was there was a there's a famous house in Carbondale um, called the Lost Cross House. And the Lost Cross House was one of the scariest, dirtiest places that you could ever go. I remember being terrified going there, uh, but everybody went there. And um, the Blue Meanies played there. I remember playing there. And um, the Lost Cross House is still having shows today. And, you know, they started, I think they had their, like, they started in the mid-'80s. What are they, up like, 40-year reunion. Yeah. And it's to the point now where the city allows them to put a stage in the street in front of the lost cross house and they have like a, you know, a festival thing. But at the time it was just, you know, the cops would hated it and the neighbors hated it. And uh, it was scary and terrifying, you know, to be a 
a punk at the Lost Cross House. What, what were some of the bands that came out of this scene in this era? Uh, Diet Christ. Yeah. Diet Christ would be, you know, if there's ever a band you want to reference in the Carbondale era, it would be Diet Christ, who was led by Mikey Snot, who um, went on to be some sort of like computer developer and ended up on the cover of Forbes magazine or something. Oh, wow. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, he still, he still has these like long bleached out uh, um, matted dreads in, that he had at that time. Um, still does today, you know. They had a drummer named Taz who looked like a guy who was a drummer named Taz. I mean, <laughs> picture that, you know, that's what I remember. They were scary to me. Uh, you know, when I was a junior high, in high school or whenever they were, they were popular around town, they scared the shit out of me. So yeah. I guess that goes both ways. The Blue Meanies, um, I was reading that uh, the name was, uh, came from a friend named Stacy Faye. Yeah, she she was Stacy Faye. She went as Annabelle Lamb Faye, um, this cool like um, lanky goth girl. Really wore like these glasses and dyed her hair crazy colors and had long bangs and was and was just kind of quiet and interesting and cool. But she, uh, yeah, she just said you should name your band this. And you know, at that point, we didn't. There was no care in the world. We were just playing music just to do it. And there was no. Yeah what your name was didn't matter. Recording didn't matter. Going on tour didn't matter. None of that mattered. It was just for fun. Was she a big Beatles fan or where did that name come from for her? No, I think she took the name from uh, psilocybin mushrooms. I think that's where she grabbed it. From. Oh, okay. I always assumed you guys were deliberately uh, referencing the Beatles in, in your naming the band Blue Meanies. Nah, not really. <laughs> but they're scary too sure <laughs> we'll be right back after this say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So when does the move to uh, Chicago happen? Uh, I graduate, and then we're waiting for Jim Cooley and Tony Imany and Seth and Jay to finish their last semester. So in the meantime, I worked at a WDQN in Decoin, Illinois. I was a I worked at this like family radio station. It was ridiculous. <clears throat> it's where I heard. Um, it's where I heard us go to war with, I guess it would be Iraq, Kuwait, the Kuwait-Iraq thing, mm-hmm. the shock and awe campaign. Uh, I was on the radio at that point. Uh, and then, so then we all went up there. We had already arranged, uh, somehow through friends of friends, we had connected with Chaz and moved to Chicago and practiced in my parents' base, basement 
and the goal was, I think we were there for like 30 days before we actually went out on our first tour, national tour, which was booked by a guy named Aaron Noss, who was in a band called Hoopla in, um, in Carbondale. And I think Aaron went out, last time I saw Aaron, I saw him outside of um, Gilman um, years and years ago. And I think he was working with puppets, maybe part of, part of Bread and Puppet maybe. Um, but he, he booked a tour and we went on this tour, I think maybe down to Texas or something from Chicago and classic tour was all booked by maximum rock and roll and pay phones and, you know, no internet, that kind of thing way back in 89, 90, probably 90, 91, somewhere there. How did you know Chaz? Jay knew Jimmy Flame. They went to high school together uh, in Deerfield, Illinois. And, and then Jim somehow knew Chaz through the Chicago, like, I don't know, music scene somehow. I think that's how, I think that was the connection. Somebody knew somebody that knew Chaz and Chaz came in the first time and it just worked out absolutely perfectly. So when I talked to Chaz um, for my, when I interviewed him for my book, he, he kind of described the, the meanies progression as, yeah, they were more of a party band in Carbondale and then they moved to Chicago. I joined. And then that's when we got to be kind of a more scary, crazy band. Do you agree with that assessment or, or do you want to dig in a little deeper on that? Um, hmm. Chaz had a nickname of Luther. <laughs> Luther, Luther, if you met Luther, he was maybe the origin of scaring children. Uh, he was one of the scariest early morning characters I've ever met in my life. And we always used to joke, hey, have you seen Luther today? <laughs> this is really his alternate personality, yeah. Yeah, and then maybe after breakfast he would turn into Chaz again. It was really fun. Uh, but I would say that, yeah, I would say that the Carbondale years were definitely more just fun. You know, there was no, there was no road miles really on the band at all. Uh, but then when we we would go on those tours, you know, those tours were grueling, you know, and just in vans, you know, the breaking down all the time and sleeping in the vans, sleeping on people's floors. And it's just the classic, you know, touring for $50 and pizza um, probably just made us angry and scary. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think of the first song. So we would come and that Kiss Your Ass Goodbye live record would be done in Carbondale pave the world would come out which wasn't really scary at all i guess there's moments on that record pave the world can be seen as a scary epic song mm-hmm. i mean really it is oh definitely kind of, i mean it's mellow but it's scary um there's a song in there called coat hanger kind of dug into abortion at the time which had a scary theme and a scary ending and and then of course that that what i was talking about the uh, star strangled banners on the end of that which is scary and then there was this like weird thing that's this pop goes the weasel thing that kind of goes around and round and round and round. It was on the end of that album just for fun, just to be, I guess, I think we're just think we were being funny, but I guess it was scary. <laughs> the pave the world. Um, I, I like the recording, but um, I remember seeing you guys in like probably like 94, 95 or something. And um, you know, I was a fan of all your stuff, but pave the world live. And I feel like if I remember serves correctly, I feel like you extended it. So it was kind of long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was an experience. Just the way that song sounded and the vibe you gave it. Yeah, 
I, I really, if there was ever a thing that I would like to try to do again, it would be to, to really record that song, uh, to try to capture that live energy of the song. Yeah. Cause I mean, you're right. It's mellow. It's not like that. It's not that intense menacing quality of a lot of your other stuff, but it was like, almost like, I think the thing that was like, when I saw that, I was like, wow, these guys are on another level. Just this, just the, the mood you created with that song. And then imagine Jay playing that bass with no eyebrows and a plastic suit <laughs> in the the world. and Tom DeLong running for the door. <laughs> I have a weird memory attached to pave the world. I was hanging out with, um, we'd played a show with Mary Tyler morphine. Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. And we were, we were staying with them and uh, they, they, Oh, let's put on pave the world. And they just had it on the record and they just put it on. And I just remember them all dancing around, like kind of looking zoned out with their hands up in the air over their heads. Oh my God. <laughs> so anytime I hear that song, I just, that's the image that pops into my head. Them just all kind of a little bit drunk, like hands over their heads, like in like this uh, religious rapture with their, you know, rocking back and forth. That seems like the right way to experience that song. Yeah. Yeah, I think so still timely that song is like still got lots of legs who wrote this song was definitely jay would come up with the initial structure that you know that intro uh organ would have been when chaz is like brilliant uh like the many chaz brilliant moments but that would be chaz would come forward with that and then the the, um, the theme in the lyric part would be written by me we'll speak on that a little bit so when i was just I think on the one of the very first early tours, possibly out to the East Coast, it was you know a, a lot of our first times ever leaving um, our lives, you know, and going out besides college or you know our lives in Chicago and going out and seeing really a lot of desolate, poor, rundown towns in America, and being just like wow, and just it's kind of eye opening for all of us to see you know, what kind of shape most of America was in. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I guess just driving everywhere and always being on a highway, you know, there's always construction. I think that's probably was the inspiration behind it. But, you know, when I sang the song, you know, I was I was trying to think about, you know, the character Joe, you know, who's you know driving this steamroller. It was always about that. And then there's a part of that song what do you call it? Uh, it's it's kind of a oh, there's a word for it in like uh, Shakespeare, or like Greek theater, um, where there's there's a there's a new voice that comes in and speaks back to the main character. There's a part of that song. I wish I could even remember the song at this point, but um, I saw it as a as really like a theater piece, you know. And and my my inspiration personally, being someone who doesn't really know how to sing, would be. Um, um, Tom Waits and uh, Nick Cave. That's, you know, when I would like get into character for that song, that's who would be inspiring me. And the big chorus, you know, the pave, pave, pave the world. So that's just following uh, Jay's part that he wrote. And, you know, just uh, maybe at the beginning, it probably felt like, you know, some people at a bar swinging beer steins and singing something. And then it just sort of morphed into that. Let's talk a little bit about you as a uh, front man. You know, you just talked about thinking about Tom Waits and, and stuff for this as a character for this. Did you have inspiration and 
thoughts about how to approach being a frontman as you guys were playing more and more? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think getting wild on stage sometimes or being theatrical or waving my arms around was really just, you know, I had to do what I could do um, as someone to look at to probably to hide the fact that I didn't really want people to pay attention to what I sounded like. Truth. You know, it wasn't until later on, I, I don't think I ever was really happy with any vocal performance or being, or really starting to have a command of vocals until the post wave. You know, before that, it was just a, a lot of screaming and just pure emotion. And, you know, on stage, I loved being on stage. Uh, I, I, I love performing. But uh, I think a lot of, you know, the, the antics, you know, before Pave the World, you know, throw me a cigarette and, you know, that was just part of the, the vibe and part of me trying to get people not to pay attention to my sound of my voice. <laughs> I mean, it's serious. Yeah. You know, I was never really a, never really a great singer. What changed from, from the previous recordings to the post wave that made you feel more comfortable? I started to listen to wise musicians like Sean, um, and, uh, took some lessons I actually went and took lessons. I tried to calm down. I tried to listen to myself um, and um, tried to focus on on melody and being confident that I could possibly do it. You know, I think if we would have been able to record a second record in the, in that lineup after Post Wave, I think I could have stretched my voice even further, uh, just practicing and um, taking and, and getting instruction. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It would have been great to have that opportunity. I think I think too, Bill. Uh, your 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 voice changed a lot with the amount of practice and time that we spent um, writing songs because we woodshedded for man, you know, got got to have be close to two years. It took us to you know from the time we started writing songs until that record actually was finished. It, it was a long time, and all we did was practice, practice, practice. In, in between, we do some tours or do some shows or whatever we were doing stuff, but we were just practicing all the time. Like five days a week, we were down in Homewood at Blue Meanies HQ and writing songs and practicing and, and really trying to listen to each other uh, more carefully than the band had ever done, I think. And, and then Sean, how many hours each practice would you practice for? We, we treated it like a job, Adam. I mean, it was like, you know, we, we really kind of, we clocked in. I mean, we weren't there at like, you know, eight in the morning or anything, but we would, we would sort of clock in in the early afternoon and go until, you know, the early evening and basically play, you know, six, eight hours a day. Uh, you know, we'd break for food or beers or whatever the case may be, but um, yeah, it was pretty much like a, we just treated it like a full-time job. Just clocking in, clocking out, writing the songs. Billy, when did the uh, megaphone come into play? Again, this is another way to 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 disguise the fact that I couldn't sing. So that was just a, a trick. Uh, I think it probably pulled that from Tom Waits. Tom Waits, uh, of course, famous for the megaphone. So it became um, a great way to do that. Also, sometimes I would like to use the megaphone to uh, enter a new a new voice into a song. So sometimes if you listen, there's like voices talking to each other in with the song. So my raw voice and then the megaphone might reply back. That that, that was a, a thought at times, but uh, I felt great with the megaphone. You know, it was just, um, you know, it was the same thing as, this is a little bit off, a little bit off topic, but the megaphone was a great way to 
something to hide behind. Um, when we first started wearing suits, you know, that was like a uh, something to hide behind. You know, we could we became different people when we put on those suits. <clears throat> and then, um, and I would say that the, the other thing that most people didn't see is that we had um, a sound engineer who was really the eighth member of the band, uh, Lance Reynolds. And um, you know, to this day, I won't play a show in, unless Lance is behind that behind the board because I know that he knows how to treat my voice and I know he knows my weaknesses and my strengths and, and he can, and he can work with me on stage without him. I, I could, I wouldn't do it. I read that you had used to rehearse in an abandoned grocery store. I think that's before your time, Sean, right? It is before my time. Yes. So this would be the Mike Pearson area. The, 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 he was the guitar player. Um, and uh, this is when we were writing full throttle. So Chaz's father had somehow had access to an old grocery store, but you need to not think about, there's no shelving in it. It's just, a, it used to be a grocery store and now it's just an empty, dark, wet space. And it was great because we used to, we could drive our cars just right into the warehouse and the garage door would open and close and Flame and uh, and uh, John Paul had these great classic big old cars, these like four door Oldsmobiles, and we just looked so cool pulling into the into the grocery store, and we'd park our cars in there, and then we had a little corner that we that we practiced in. <clears throat> that was all in Homewood, Illinois, where where Chaz was from. It was, yeah, it was cool. That's where so uh, songs like Fourth um, of July would be would was written there, and Send Help, Smash the Magnavox, that that chapter of scary <laughs> what was the what was the acoustics like in that building it was loud <laughs> just like we liked it <laughs> yeah you know there's a i'm glad you brought that up because you know it was really loud and uh you know th there was a part of the band uh, up until the post wave the last record that we didn't exactly listen to each other um you know we personally we talked over each other we disagreed with each other we uh, just like brothers would do, but even uh, in the song songwriting process, you know, sometimes we would just barrel through these songs, and everybody would just be throwing parts on top of it, and uh, whether it clashed or not, it didn't matter. It was just that's th this is your part. You're playing the horns, and you're just gonna like just run right over the guitar or whatnot. It wasn't until the post wave that we actually made a conscious decision to turn down and listen to each other and not step on each other's toes. That wasn't until then. I see. But the supermarket, the supermarket acoustics were, were perfect for not listening to anybody else in the band. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine a song like uh, ninth ward being written in that environment because it's like just total cacophony. Like this, this wall of sound that hits you. And it's just, and then the horns are blaring. And I can just hear that like echoing in this big boomy room and you guys just being like, yeah, fuck all you, you know? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Another megaphone song, yeah. Would anyone ever come to, to practice at the grocery store besides the band? Yeah, you know, a lot of times, you know, people would come and hang out for a second, uh, you know, cute girls, and they'd be there for like five minutes until their ears couldn't take it anymore. And they'd be... <laughs> <laughs> No, there was nowhere to sit. There were no chairs. There were no. Yeah. There was no couches. It was just literally an empty. It more. It looked like a warehouse, but an empty old grocery store with nothing in it. There was a little 
area off to the side that had a bunch of old dental like uh, equipment, like really kind of <laughs> macabre. <laughs> so if you didn't know when you were here, we're playing this loud music, and then over there, there's like these weird chairs that look like bondage chairs and other weird equipment. <laughs> the and reason they were there is because Chaz's dad sold them. You know that was, but it was definitely added, added to the vibe. And then some guy in a in a weird mask comes out. And starts grabbing the <laughs> dental equipment and coming at you. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go back a little bit. Um, you guys moved to Chicago. Um, there, as I understand it, you guys you guys were kind of connected more with the Chicago punk scene. You didn't really think of yourselves as a ska band, um, but it was kind of the the ska bands from other parts of the Midwest started to connect with you and that's kind of how you got the ska association or ska label. I don't even think we were connected with the Chicago punk scene at the time. We just really were completely on our own. You know, we had copies of MRR and that's how we booked our tours. And, you know, we weren't, we didn't know any difference to meet (laughs) bands and play shows with bands. Um, Really the first connection that, that really, kind of made us think outside of just ourselves with is MU330. You know, it's playing with them and like and and sort of having the same the same background. You know, they're practicing in a basement, we're practicing in a basement, they've got some horns, we got some horns. We we're trying to figure out how to go and travel around America. Um, we're about the same age. That that's the first time we really ever connected. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that they were um ska influenced band at all. It was just it we had the same ideas. We wanted to do the same things. And that it was just, let's see if we can make it to California. Let's see if we can make it to Manhattan. That was pretty much the idea. And you played with uh, MU-230 and Pickle, Skank and Pickle in um, the outhouse in the, where's the outhouse? Lawrence, Lawrence, Kansas? Lawrence, yeah. Oh, oh do you know about this place? Uh, I don't, I've never been there. Adam, have you been there? I feel like I probably have. I, I'm, I know of it. I just have never been there. But yeah. It's a legendary place. So, you know, you have to really put your minds into, um, you know, you're touring, you have an address um, that's written on a piece of paper, and you have maybe a phone number that you have to stop at a pay phone. You know, you can't check your iPhone for, you know, your, your Google Maps or your MapQuest or anything. And, and you're in Kansas, which is the middle of nowhere. And then you're in Lawrence. And then you're following some strange directions that somebody jotted down from a payphone conversation and you are leaving the city of Lawrence and then you're riding down a dirt road and on either side of your dirt road is like eight foot tall corn. There's no buildings. It's just corn forever. And and you begin to think to yourself like, what are, what have we got ourselves into? Is this real? Is this, have we been duped? And then you, I forget how far it was out into the cornfield, a mile or so. And it's a little opening and there was this tiny little single story cinder block building, you know, where the Flaming Lips played and Fishbone played and Fugazi played. And uh, that is where we met MU330 okay. and Skank and Pickle for the first time. Yeah. Dan told me about that show and, and he had an awareness. He said that when they played that show, he became aware of the idea that this thing called ska, ska punk or whatever, that it was a very flexible genre and it 
encompassed everything from skank and pickle to you know to them to you guys and he just kind of saw how it, it kind of put two and two together in his head about the scene that was kind of bumbling up that they were that you guys were all a part of yeah it was definitely an it was a it was an origin for a lot of us you know it was Skank and Pickle was definitely on a, we respected them, you know, they were coming from California. So he was sort of like, wow, there's a band from California here. And they were fun, but they were also a little bit scary at the same time. Oh, yeah. Jerry and Lars, <laughs> these towering trombone players were terrifying. And, uh, it, and then um, what's the uh, Mike, the name of the bass player at the time? He was Mattingly, Mr. Yeah. Clean. Mr. Clean. Ter- terrifying too you know and and they really pushed the boundaries of ska way before you know bands like blue meanies or mc30 or or link 80 did you know they were they were kind of far out there too and also had a little bit of like occasionally there'd be like a funk vibe that would pop up and a punk vibe and a, and a ska vibe so we appreciated them for their just like willingness to break the, the rules it was cool yeah in Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So Jay quits um, before Kiss Your Ass Goodbye, but still records on it. Is that how is that what happens? Yeah, yeah. I think the I think the album had been scheduled to record and um our run together came to an end um, on the West Coast, and we drove back to Chicago, and there were a few weeks in between. We drove to St. Louis to record it. We had a little little tiny record deal with a small boutique label in St. Louis. And um, Jay, I th- we actually flew Jay in to record you know, the basics, the basic tracks, and then flew him out. So he didn't even stay, I don't believe, for the vocals or the horns or any overdubs after that because it was so awkward and, um, you know, the, it wasn't good. But they were really, Jay was the songwriter. They were his songs and, you know, we wanted him to play on it. Um, but yeah, Jay was actually out of the band when that album was recorded. What's the story with the cover image? Yeah. Who is that kid? Uh, his, I grew up um, on the northwest side of Chicago. And uh, across the street from me uh, were the McNamaras and the McNamaras, um, Johnny McNamara, who uh, is the song Johnny Mortgage, which is on Kiss Your Ass Goodbye, is sort of sort of written with Johnny McNamara in mind. But his son is the kid in that cover. Um, He's a McNamara. Johnny would be the first one in our group of neighborhood kids to like take the leap into uh, he got married and got a really good job and um, and had a kid. Uh, so that was his kid in there. He's still proud of it. He's got a he's got the poster hung up in his house, which is pretty cool. <laughs> what is the what's the kid think of his uh, his image being on the cover? I think he loved it. I think he loved it. It was really hard to shoot it. Uh, he was he wasn't excited about wearing that hat, a suit and a hat, and um, 
and we had to like, I think we had to feed him candy the whole time just to get him to stand still. But, but he did it. It, it, it was pretty good. He's got to uh, be in his early thirties now. Right. I mean, at least. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Definitely, maybe even forties. Yeah. I think he's full on married now. Um, but he, he comes out to, uh, you know, anytime the band plays in Chicago, he'll come out and see us, uh, see us play again. Uh, that was cool. That was some, uh, the back cover of that, you know, is supposed to be the kid blown up and there's like some early Photoshop examples in there. The flame on that, the back cover looks pretty, pretty funny at the time. That was pretty awesome, but the technology has changed so much. <laughs> so, um, around this time that it's released, you're going to have to kind of put some of this together for me. It's my understanding that you moved to new Orleans. Yeah. In mid nineties or something. This is before, after kiss your ass goodbye before full throttle. And so the band breaks up for a little while or as it goes on hiatus, what's, what's going on there? Yeah. I think the band was done. I think it was sort of like, um, it was just too hard just to keep going. You could tell we weren't, you know, going to be, you know, wasn't really happening on the, you know, on the larger level. And, um, I think Jimmy Cooley and Tony Imony were kind of the first ones like, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're we, we can't keep doing this. We can't keep traveling around the country and you know, doing this at this level. And uh, which is understandable today. I, of course I get it. At the time I was really pissed. I was like, I can't believe it's throwing in the towel. We're going to be huge stars. So, uh, yeah, I, um, just picked up and, um, Shay, Shay, who's my, been my partner now for, gosh, 30 years or so, um, she, uh, she and I just threw a dart at a map and ended up in New Orleans. And um, we were there for two years. And then at that time, the band sort of like somehow came back together. Sean, how did we come? No, you weren't even part of that. I wasn't. Well, I was living, living, in, living, living around the guys who ended up in your band. With Dave and Bob. With Dave and Bob, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it was tangentially related to that, but not directly. I can't remember who was really the cheerleader to get us all back together and to write and record again and, you know, end up in the abandoned supermarket. Um, but yeah, so I was in New Orleans for a couple of years that the song, um, the devil went down the ninth ward. Is that the, is that that's the ninth ward of, is, is New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was written about our landlord at the time did you live in the ninth ward i did i lived one year we with the first year we went there we lived in the quarter and then we found a place it was like 350 a month for this like giant shotgun apartment in on burgundy street in the ninth ward oh. of course this is all pre-katrina you know the the ninth ward which has now been renamed the bywater was much much different um then than it is today uh, but yeah, I lived there. It was a, it was a, it was a magical couple of years and also terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it terrifying? New Orleans is you know a, a, a crime-ridden city. Um, you know, with basically, uh, I, I I'm kind of spooked about the fact that the Mississippi um, collects all of our garbage and dumps it all into the, you know. It, it, into the Gulf right there at new Orleans. So I can only imagine, you know, the, the world famous shrimp we're eating out of there has just got to be truly gross, delicious, but gross. Um, <laughs> it's just a hard place. You know, we were broken into many times. All our friends were broken into, you know, there was muggings and a uh, car, our car was stolen and it's just, 
uh, I mean, it was a fun place to live. There was this wonderful art scene happening there, really cool art scene and still there today. Um, but uh, in the end, it was just too much. It was just, I don't know why anyone would want, would want to live in that environment, to be honest. What did you fill your time with while you were living in New Orleans? I think we ended up, um, I didn't work. I was, um, I think we ended up just jump, jumping right into writing uh, full throttle. So I think I was writing and uh, just kind of uh, decompressing from the, the prior chapter of Blumini's and starting to think ahead to the new chapter. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I was doing a lot of thinking about the band and how to get it back together and, and give it a go again. I see. Have you heard, uh, have you heard the bad operation have you, that band? Have you, have you heard of them? Yeah. I love bad operation. Uh, I heard the, uh, yeah, the famous, uh, Mike Park phone call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we're with, we're with MU three thirty and possibly alkaline trio on that during that time, which I think is Mardi Gras. And I'm probably pretty sure they're all staying at my house. Um, when we lived in the quarter, I think. Okay. Do you so do you know um, who who alerted you to that clip that of the band? Uh, was it you? I don't I don't know I don't know who I, I'd heard it before. I think it ended up somewhere on some other recording, maybe a comp or something. But wasn't a mail order is fun? Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, but I, I heard it. Uh, someone had tagged us in, in something at some point. Yeah. He, he's kind of glossing over it, but he, he started trying to get the meanies back together right away. And, and so we were, we were still kind of winding down weaker youth ensemble at the time. And Bill started calling our house. It was me, Dave and, and Bob. Uh, and he started calling, trying to see, were you, were you guys interested in coming to play with the meanies? And I was like, I thought about it a little bit. I never actually talked to Bill about it directly. Um, but uh, he, Bob and, and Dave were gung-ho for it. I was kind of like almost done with finishing my college degree. I was like a, like three semesters from getting my BA. So I was like kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to just go play in a band. I want to finish, finish school. Um, so that's, that's how we ended up roping Dave and Bob in at that point. Cause weaker youth was kind of winding down. We kind of not doing what we wanted to do anymore as a band. And uh, you know, those guys were just ready to get out on the road and, and go do it. So. What, so just for real quick background, um, Weaker Youth Ensemble, what was that band's run? So Weaker Youth, yeah, we got together in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just kind of on a lark, Dave and I had been playing in a couple of bands together for since high school. And uh, yeah, we just kind of alternative rock bands, nothing, nothing really to write your mom home about. Um, but, uh, we, we had met Bob Tronson, uh, playing in local bands and, uh, he had a band called Bald Cat that he played drums for in Madison. And, um, we were in a band called Barbecue Fantasy and both those bands broke up and we, we all got a house together. And, uh, I think Bob had just finished college. He's a couple years older than me and Dave's a year older than me. And, uh, D- Dave and I were just kind of bumming around working jobs and picking away at school. Uh, but we, we, we all just wanted to play ska we were just kind of interested in it and i think the the mr bungle record had come out we were kind of influenced by that like this is kind of cool we could we could do something like that and, and but put our own spin on it um so that's that's kind of how that came together it was just the three of us uh fucking around for a while and then we got 
uh, a singer, John Powell, who was this, uh, you know, six foot four dude, tall, lanky. Uh, and John was 10 years older than me. So he was like 30 at the time. I was, I was 20, 21, somewhere around there. And John had this great, great knowledge of ska. He knew, he knew everything about traditional ska and two-tone ska. He was a huge Fishbone fan, like the rest of us were too. And uh, he, he just kind of schooled us all, uh, you know, shared a lot of music with us and really ha- helped us understand uh, the history of the music. I mean, we'd all been exposed to it, of course, but like J- John really helped us all dig into it. And then uh, we found a keyboard player and some horn players. And then we had a run between, I guess, 91 and 94, 95 ish. When, when, when the meanies broke up that and finished kiss your ass goodbye. So weaker youth was winding down around the same time. We had, we put a, one record out that we self-financed and self-released. We printed like 2000 copies on CD and, and cassette. Um, and, and no, nobody wanted to pursue the band full time. Uh, the keyboard player was a really good guy. Brian Belloc was his name. Brian, great musician, uh, but he just was not made out for the road. And uh, every time we took road trips, uh, Brian was miserable. And that was a big, I think that was a big factor in it. But <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So two of the members of Weaker Youth Ensemble joined Blue Meanies as they were reforming, but you didn't join quite yet? No, correct. They found Mike Pearson. Um, and if I remember this right, it was John Paul Camp the third, our saxophone player, uh, had gone to music school with Mike at Northern Illinois University. Um, and so Mike was a guitar student. And um, uh, I think, I, you know, I don't know the exact back and forth about it, but I, I know at one point they just kind of settled on Mike. He was the guy and a uh, great choice. I mean, the guy could, could play anything and was, was brilliant, brilliant musician. Um, and I think he just added a, a whole new dimension to that band and, and made them sound completely different. Yeah. Uh, you know, very, very aggressive, very in your face, um, inventive, you know, technique was just out of this world. So tell me a little bit of, from your point of view, reforming the band. So obviously you don't have every member is ready to rejoin. You get a couple members from weaker youth ensemble. Are you, st- you're still in new Orleans and, and like, as you're putting it together? I am. I'm still in New Orleans. Um, I don't think I'm putting it together. I, I don't. There's a character that will pop up um, named Jeff Step, And uh, Jeff really became um, sort of a manager, I guess. You know, he kind of helped us. We used to go down. He lived in Charleston, Illinois, which is in the middle of Illinois. And we used to go down there and practice and uh, he helped us out and he helped us like uh, sell merchandise and get art and really became sort of a, a manager, trial by fire manager. It definitely wasn't, hadn't managed, you know, bands beforehand, but we really liked him and trusted him. And he was really a crucial member of the band. And um, I think he was the one that sort of said, you know, we've got an opportunity here. We can put the, we can put the pieces back together with, the guys from Weaker Youth, who we were all friends with, and then John bringing Mike into the into the fold was great. And I don't remember the actual day that Mike sat down. Like we asked him to learn some songs, and then Mike would show up and play the songs. But Mike was phenomenal. I mean, he he was ne- next level approach to guitar playing. 
just way far out there. And he was really cool. And I think the other part of it, I think we could practice at his parents' house. So that was that was a big bonus. <laughs> we practiced there too. Um, and then he also he brought on a hash brown, and hash brown was a longtime roadie. So it just sort of, and they were also near Homewood, kind of where Chaz was. So there's a lot of like connections happening here with Carbondale and Madison and uh, the south side of Chicago where Chaz was from that kind of like just kind of kept it together without, you know, like, you know, hiring on a, a, you know, a hired gun or something. I don't remember exactly, but I'm going to guess that if Sean had been available at the time and maybe you were Sean, but I mean, I, I, I love Sean and I, I, Sean, without a doubt to me is still, I think we, I connect more with Sean than anyone in the band today. Um, and, um, I'm sure at that time I would have been like, to me, it's always about like who you're with and not so much, you know, how great of a guitar player or horn player you are. It's really, to me, I'm like, who am I going to spend all my time with in the van? And I mean, I could, I could travel around the country with Sean in a canoe and be happy. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, there's probably part of that. Yeah. I, I don't remember ever talking to you or to Jeff about joining. I remember Dave asking me, uh, saying he had talked to you or maybe he had talked to Jeff. I don't know, but he had, he had talked to one of you guys and, and the question was, was I interested? And I was really interested, but I also wanted to get my degree. I wanted to finish school. Um, and, and I was really torn over it. I, I, I regretted it the moment I said no. Um, but I also don't regret it because I know things wouldn't have worked out the same way. So it's one of those moments where you, you have a, a fork in the road and you have to go left or right. And, I went left and those guys went right and we were apart for a couple of years there, but um, we came back together. So it worked out, but, but yeah, I, 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 I mean, uh, full throttle never would have happened. And that's, a, that's a, a wonderful, uh, amazing testament to what that band was at the time. And, uh, you know, Mike was a big part of that. Um, and, you know, I, I just always felt honored to be a part of that whole uh, lineage of the band. But uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine a Blue Meanies world where the songs from Full Throttle don't exist. That's that's like uh, impossible for me to imagine. So, so you were writing a lot of the th- Full Throttle record uh, in New Orleans. So, you get back together. How soon does Full Throttle become a reality? And you know, in terms of you guys starting to record it and everything like that. So, wow. There's a few, there's a couple stories in this timeline that I think they're touring. We we get right back on the road and we continue touring and writing. Um, this is the time when I think Adam Katz, who was um, would become Jeff Step, would give the manager role, an official entertainment you know manager to Adam Katz, who was in L.A. And sort of our team began to assemble in Los Angeles uh, based on Adam Katz and uh, Rick Bondi at Tahoe. Um, so there was touring still going on. There was writing happening. Uh, there was lo- there began to have lots of record label interest. People were starting to sniff around, mm. probably because of the, uh, the 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 success that was beginning to build around the third wave. Yeah, um, and. Um, 
so there's, there's stuff happening. I think that's part of the reason we decided to give it a go because there was stuff happening that was positive that seemed like, okay, maybe something, maybe we could take another step. And then there was, there were people like Bob and Mike and Dave who were willing to take that next step. We're willing to say, all right, I'm, I'm willing to jump in a van and go on the road. So I think a lot of that was happening. So full throttle we would be put out by Thick, of course, and there's Zach Einstein at Thick, and he's interested in the band and he wants to work. So things started to like fall into place a little bit. Yeah. That would just kind of take us up a notch. And um yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of what was happening. And then I don't even I, then I remember packing up the car and with Shay and driving back to Chicago and um and beginning to, you know, start, start again, to start over and do it again. But, you know, while I was in New Orleans, you know, my part of the band has never been the music, you know, I'm not writing chords, you know, I'm, I'm just writing words. So, you know, there's definitely a book with lots of words in there. And I imagine a lot of it was a little bit, um, there's probably some angry stuff in there, some hopeful stuff, um, angry because the band didn't make it, you know, after you know, we broke up and now we're trying to get together again. The world was kind of in shambles, if I remember correctly, what was happening then. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, why am I in New Orleans? Now I'm moving back to Chicago and all these things. A lot of like, what if? So there's a lot of, uh, you know, I, we talk about the anger a little bit um, because we saw a lot of these bands um, come and play with us who we just thought weren't, you know, they weren't doing like... Um, musical acrobats acrobatics like we were doing and we thought everybody should do that and we should we thought we should have been recognized and and uh and paid for for being inventive and it seemed like all the bands that were just uh weren't being inventive were becoming su- successful and that was part of the anger too sure yeah so when so when we were done writing you know we ended up going back we went and going to madison where we were practicing and we went to smart studios uh, in Madison. So this is where Bob and Dave and Sean are from. So there's the connection again and we recorded full throttle there. So in this period, you said you got Rick Bondi became your booking agent. Yeah, probably even before them, he's probably a, maybe even connected to us back when, when I think maybe that cornfield show is how we got introduced to Rick. Yeah. Did Mike introduce you to him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've heard that uh, Rick's agency, known as Tahoe Agency, became known as the Skahoe Agency uh, because <laughs> you dubbed them so. I don't know if it was me, but but if, <laughs> if it's funny, I'll take it. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, we always thought of Ska's funny. You know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing to you know poke fun at. We loved all our people that we played with but it's it's a funny genre um i don't know if i actually said that but sure why not uh, rick, so rick told me so yeah he said it was it came from you is he mad at me no no he, <laughs> he was glad for it no yeah so yeah so so people don't know rick bondy was uh in that period of time he booked like all the ska bands basically yeah sublime uh i think we connected to no doubt unless than jake real and, big um, fish yeah toasters scottalites goldfinger wasn't it with the uh, tahoe band yeah T- goldfinger at one point became a scahoe a scahoe agency band Scahoe. yeah uh, and, and that's the connection to universal and mca eventually you know it's like mca was like 
and Universal was listening to to Rick because you know the, the third wave was blowing up and Rick seemed to be the reason for it. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So, okay, I want to let's, let's talk more about Full Throttle, though. Um, you, so that does, that does sound like an angrier record to me than Kiss Your Ass Goodbye. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also um, the techniques, the technicality on that record, particularly the horns, are amazing. And, uh, I, you know, it's not, just a, it's not just a studio thing, too, because you guys released a, a live record like a year later, and the horns and the whole band pretty much sounds as good as the studio, you know, like I think of, um, say a song like smash the magna box where you have that, like, you know, that whole part with the horns. Yeah. I mean, you don't really, you weren't really hearing ska bands engage in that kind of horn lines with that kind of precision. And that really was a guitar line. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Pearson wrote that the horns had to learn and just to jump ahead just a little bit when Sean came about the big thing was can you play the the riff can you play smash the magnavox that was that was the audition <laughs> <laughs> and what's the answer bill <laughs> absolutely I, yeah I, eventually, eventually I could play it but oh my god that was the hardest piece of music I've ever had to learn uh, literally, I, I to this day, if I pick up my guitar, I will struggle to get it down uh, without practicing it over and over and over because it is so fast and so technical. I ended up playing it with two fingers. That That's how I figured out I could do it. It, it. I should use all four of my fingers to play it. I'm sure Mike does. But I ended up learning to do it with two fingers. So awesome. go, go figure. <laughs> and it, it's not, not only the intro, you know, that notey part, but it's getting from that into the verse, into the chords. I mean, and lightning fast. I mean, yeah. Lord. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, full throttle, we're going to smart studios. And of course this is, you know, Nirvana has recorded there and smashing pumpkins are, have recorded there. And those are all the people that are at the time are, you know, they're, they're on top of the charts. They are, they are what alternative is all about. And so there was a long history of, being at smart um smart studios and recording there which is thrilling to us and at the same time being there was an honor and being able to perform at a higher level you know in those walls was important Mm -hmm. so yeah plus we were just angry and wanted to go faster there's a little bit of uh you know we weren't um as far as you know drugs go you know there's many rumors about you know what we know we may have done or not done and sure we smoked a lot of pot and but at that time there was a lot of um what are the little trucker speed ephedrine mm-hmm. mm, epinephrine yeah i think it was called ephedrine at yeah, the time. E- ephedrine yeah trucker pills yeah. yeah 
Yeah, we used to take, like, before we'd play, we'd, like, shake the bottle, and it was, like, Pavlov's dog, and Bob would take three ephedrines, and we'd all take ephedrines, and then so we could play as fast as the record was. But, um, or actually, <laughs> not even as fast as the record was, because the record hadn't been recorded yet. But it was, uh, you know, it was, like, a light speed, you know, trucker speed. And we used to do that all the time, and that's how we really kept it going all the time. And I think we learned how to, we learned that pace of those songs and that's what ended up coming out when we recorded them. Wow. So that's how the horns are, are that fast and that tight? Or raise a spun? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I think there's actually maybe a little, uh, uh, there was a little, uh, if I remember right, kind of, uh, John Paul was a little annoyed with how fast everything was laid down. He, he actually told, told me that story. He was he, he thought everything was too fast and he wanted to slow it down. And he, had, he, had, he, he thought the, the band had been rehearsed to be at the right tempo in John's mind. And uh, when he got there, he was like, everything was way too fast. And he was, he was pissed. That's, that's what he told me. He's anyway. probably right. He's yeah. probably right. But I don't think, um, I'm not so sure John, but maybe Jimmy, that they were just incredible horn players. Yeah. You know, they yeah. had, they had the technique and I uh, you know, you know, from school and they were just really good at what they did. And yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't even know it, but I mean, because unless you have the encyclopedic knowledge, I mean, I think Jim, you know, after the Kiss Your Ass Goodbye era, Jim was writing most of the horn lines, right? And and he yeah. has this knowledge of jazz that is deep and broad, and he'd be quoting stuff from all kinds of obscure jazz players. I'm sure, like half of those Bluminis, you know, horn lines are, are Jim riffing on something he had in his head, and then he and John would take it and work it and work it and. and come up with something that was their own but that's that's what their basis was just this like you know just knowledge of jazz that uh, goes beyond what any of us normal people would have yeah sure they were great you know from my perspective looking like to my left and to my right and behind me the the, the musicianship and craftsmanship of the and the speed of the people on that stage or in that studio at the time of full throttle was incredible yeah like just you know, look over and see these people performing so quickly and then performing like on stage too, being able to, you know, try to look good too while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> they were just great. I, I remember every time I saw you guys in that era that I, I each progressively, I mean, and I saw you guys a lot, uh, but progressively the band was getting better and better and, and faster and tighter. And it, it it was mind blowing to watch you guys go from kiss your ass goodbye, which is pretty aggressive and, and fast music to this, like just different plane of musical reality. And, and Bill's right. I mean, everybody in the band just developed into these just amazing musicians. I mean, Dave, Dave Lund can play bass at an amazing level uh, when he puts his mind to it. And so can Bob Tronson play the drums. I mean, all of these guys were just, they were off the charts good and, and, and of course Chaz was in his own universe musical universe just adding all kinds of texture and layer I mean it was just amazing to watch these guys and then on top of that you know uh, when we can do it right three-part harmonies yeah yeah at the same at the same time yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. so or lots of screaming as the case may be and screaming yeah two parts <laughs> screaming. maybe in the same bar <laughs> so when when full throttle came out you guys hit the road for five consecutive months is that true i would say that we probably were gone most of the year or a couple of years just just gone but yeah that would that would seem about right that would seem that's just what we did you know i think we committed to going and doing it and trying to 
trying to, you know, crack, crack something out there and get people to listen was, was what we were trying to do. So yeah, I would say five months without stopping. Sure. Yeah. And then, and then for, and then keep, and then kept maybe a short break and keep, keep on going. So during this time you, um, were tapped to be a band in the film, uh, Clubland. <laughs> okay. Yes. We were in the film Clubland. How do you know about that? Uh, I, I do my research. <laughs> Let's hear about it. So uh, I'm trying to try to remember some names. So Glenn Ballard, I believe was a successful producer at the time. And maybe he did Alanis Morissette. Yes. Alanis Morissette. And uh, so he, we kind of knew him from there. And then he was going to make this movie called Clubland. Somehow, some way through some Los Angeles connection, we were tapped to be a band playing on stage. Um, was for, it John for, Rosner? Was it Rosner who connected? It might have been Rosner. Um, I'm not sure, but I do know that Lori Petty uh, was um, in the movie. She was um, she was like the star of the movie, and yeah, so I yeah, went straight to VHS. <laughs> so were you um, were you playing Blue Meanies, or are you like it was, so? What were you playing? It was the Infidelity song, which was which is on full throttle. Wow. So we were playing, we were playing live and there's like a scene in the club and then we're on stage and, you know, for a second, you know, whatever. I think um, maybe Lori Petty or somebody at the end of the, the section of the movie says something negative about the bass player. <laughs> <laughs> and the bass player, there's like a really intent, there's like a really, um, you know, there's an intro that Dave has to play that's maybe not that easy. It's definitely not. He's not a bad bass player, but I think in the movie they say something like, "Oh, that bass player sucks." <laughs> yeah, it's it's really like it's like you know thirty second notes on a on a fretless bass that David's doing this descending pattern. Yeah, so that's that's irony to the maximum. <laughs> so from what I read, there's a um, choreographer for the crowd, and in terms of how they are acting during your yeah. performance. Yeah, they're like a, they're a pit a pit choreographer. Pit choreographer, okay. I'm I can re- no, I'm remembering this, and there was like somebody with a green mohawk, like you know, pitting around, and, and they were they were showing them. Maybe the pit mohawk guy was like he had some experience, and everybody else did not. I don't know. Yeah, they, it was a full on movie. We were there for hours and hours and hours to film. You know, thirty seconds of of, of the movie. <laughs> pit choreographer. That's a job title. Yeah. At that time, too, we. Uh, Became friends with the the folks at Trauma Films. Yeah, Are you familiar with Trauma Films. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're like the Toxic Avenger people. Yeah, Toxic Avenger and Tromeo and Juliet. And um, we wrote a um, the title track to the movie Sucker right around the same, maybe just a little bit after this. Because I think, are you involved in this now, Sean? That was the first song I wrote with the Blue Meanies. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. So, and it's about uh, what happens if you're a a vampire and you suck the blood of someone who has AIDS. <laughs> mm. So yep, that was, that was what that was. Yeah. So did this movie get released? Sucker. Oh yeah. yeah. Straight to VHS. It was right in the blo- <laughs> blockbuster. It was next to Clubland. It was like, what's these? <laughs> Back in the day, you could go to blockbuster and on a, on a busy day, you could get a copy of uh sucker Clubland or Ishtar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, ouch. 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 And, 
and that's how we hooked Sean into it, the whole thing. I actually love the the song we wrote for Sucker. I just thought it was it was cool. It had like a great. It's a cool song. It's yeah. surf surf rock. It's like yeah. surf rock, and it had a great uh, organ intro, uh, kind of kind of pave the world esque. Um, yeah, it was neat. Is it anywhere? Is it on anything besides the movie? No, I, I think it's been banned. Yeah, it's been banned by the government. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the Pigs EP. Actually, that's that, that's where it was officially released. Oh, okay. <laughs> we did play it live a few times. We played it live a lot, actually. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, although, yeah. So you you also did a video for Smash the Magnavox. We didn't do it. Bob Tronson did it. Oh, okay. You know Bob. You know, Bob Tronson is uh, some sort of filmmaker now. Makes, that's how he makes his living. And he, um, he put together that whole video. He, he assembled an entire crew, like a, a massive crew. And not many people know this, but it's shot on 35 millimeter film. Wow. Yeah, not video at all. Have you seen the video, Adam? Oh, yeah. Many times. Did, he didn't run it by you. He just did it and said, here you go. Well, I mean, I was there. I was in it, but you know, uh, yeah, we, yeah, we trusted him. It was, it was, it was cool. It was, uh, it was fun to do. You know, it was, I, I thought it was a cool video. It still looks great too, by like today's standards. You know, Bob's gonna hate me for saying this, but I'm gonna tell you a little secret. Oh yeah, sure. So Bob also wrote this neat little short film called Range Life. It's really, it's really hard to find. And it was, it was loosely based on the Blue Meanies, and he somehow got me to to be in the film as the leader of a band, mm-hmm. um, which played Blue Meanie, a Blue Meanie song. But it's a really, I mean, it's also another thing where he got a whole crew together and shot it on thirty-five millimeter film, and it's this cool little short film about a band hoping to make it, and and they're playing a show and they're waiting for an A&R guy to come and the A&R guy doesn't show up and, and all the drama that happens you know, before that. But it's cool. He got like a pavement, uh, you know, the pavement has a song called range life and he mm-hmm. got a pavement to say that uh, we could, he could use that song in the final credits of it. It's neat. It's a neat film. Nice. Hard, hard to find. I don't think, I don't know. Maybe Bob doesn't want him anyone to see it but i thought it was cool but the band in it the band is called jehovah's shit list <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a great name yeah and i'm the singer of jehovah's shit list and mary tyler morphine the girl from mary tyler morphine by the way is the bass player in that band oh okay gene hmm. yeah. mcclure gene mcclure so sean joins the band um sean your first you joined the band right at the onset of Scott against racism. Well, yeah, slightly before that. So, um, Bill could probably tell more of this story if, if you wanted to, but I, Mike, I think you guys were on tour with Indy three thirty, if I'm not mistaken, when Mike finally decided he'd had enough. Um, and you guys finished out a tour where you came home and Dave and Bob were still in Madison. And I was, I was, I had been finished with school for a while. I was just working some schmo job. I had a job, uh, terrible terrible job collecting money for the uh student loan program it was i mean like really just soul crushing job um so i I was more than willing to uh entertain offers to join the blue meetings at that point uh (laughs) (laughs) dave and bob uh got 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 back from tour and i you know i saw these guys all the time every time they were home from tour 
uh, we we were hanging out and, and just, just shooting the shit and whatever. So I, I was still in touch with everybody on a regular basis. But uh, they took me out for beers and, and we went to the plaza in Madison. Uh, and they sat me down and said, hey, Mike, quit the band. And I said, oh, really? And they said, do you want to join? And I'm like, well, fuck yeah. And they're like, wait, are you sure? Because this is not, you know, this is not like for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is like, you know, this is sleeping on floors. This is, you know, uh, making, you know, 10 bucks a day if you're lucky. You know, like, this is hard. This is a hard life. And are you sure you want to do it? And I'm like, fuck yeah, I want to do it. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I've been waiting for the last, you know, three years to you know, get, get back at this. So, yeah, yeah. Because I hadn't been doing it shit other than, Hold up in my little efficiency apartment, recording these bizarre little guitar tracks that were, you know, just just me uh, trying to trying to not lose track of the fact that I like to write music, and so I had all this just pent up energy that was ready to go for a band. So I was just gung ho. You you couldn't have got me into that faster, mm. and that was I think like I want to say that was around like Thanksgiving of nineteen ninety seven. Somewhere around there. So uh, the Scoggins Racism Tour, I think, was starting to get put together. You know, Mike was Mike Park was was planning that out with uh, with Rick Bondi, I'm sure, at that point. Uh, and I think that was kind of on the radar. It's like that's something we're going to do. You know, after the first of the year. So I just started woodshedding with Dave and Bob, and just started trying to learn as much Blue Meanies music as I could. I mean, I, I knew it all. Uh, I'd never played any of it, but I I, I had an understanding of it all. So it, it it helped that I had played with those guys and and bands before. Uh, but that was tough, man. That was that was that was a tough uh, process to learn all those songs. I don't even know, Bill. Did you guys even uh, audition anybody else? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. There you go. But all, <laughs> so. but all I can think about here is: is that your first tour, Scott Against Racism? That was my first tour. So we did like. You know, we uh, we did like I don't know, maybe a half a dozen shows before that. I don't know. I, we we uh, played this show in Carbondale. It was a total disaster because uh, I got lost. I couldn't hear things, and I, I, so I was just completely like, "What? What am I doing here?" And then there were there was a show in Northern uh, at DeKalb uh, where uh, uh, I think you ended up laying on the floor singing uh, a Pink Floyd song. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, and that was with the Broadways. The Broadways were still together. They they showed up at that, and then we hit the road and we headed west, and we played a show in like Denver and a couple other stops on the way, and then we joined the Scoggins Racism Tour in Seattle. So my my perspective on the Blue Meanies starts there, at this giant venue in Seattle, Washington, and these guys have been telling me this this is a you know we're going to be playing shitty little clubs and doing this and that. And that's, that's my first tour is I show up and there's, you know, a couple thousand people there. Lucky bastard. I know. Right. (laughs) I I skipped over, I skipped over some of the uh, less savory parts and got right to the good stuff. So, but you know, I just showed up at the right time, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sean, in your time in the band, were the blue meanies staying at people's houses or were they able to get hotel rooms and whatnot? We were still doing that quite a bit. Um, okay. We were, yeah, we were, we were doing some of that, but it was mostly friends at that point. Cause right. these guys had built, built up a network of people that they, they knew everywhere, you know, a ship in every port, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so they were, they, they were, they, there were lots of people to stay with that we knew or these guys knew. 
uh, that became, you know, I, I would of course become friends with too, but um, yeah, we did, we did start, uh, I think this was seen as a big, you know, graduation step for the band that we, we would get one room at the Motel 6 uh, every night. So that was like a big deal. So with Scott Against Racism, I've, I've read things you've said, Billy, and, um, you know, I've, Mike has kind of has, his, Mike Park has an opinion about the tour being maybe not quite what he had hoped it would be. And you had kind of a similar feeling about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I said something in uh, the Chicago Reader, I think, when it came through Chicago about, um, you know, I forget who was all on that tour. You know, I think Blue Meanies at a time, you know, really held the flag as far as the purpose of the tour. Bob, our drummer, um, you know, is schooled in African-American studies and, um, this, the tour really meant a lot to him and he would get up and he would speak uh, for a few minutes before the headlining band to make a point. And that, w- that was important to us. And uh, I think when we were on stage, we'd always like try to say something or, you know, the, the set was written in a certain way to send a message across, you know, that had to do with the tour. But um, from the sidelines during the rest of the rest of the show, there was, rarely if ever a mention of why we were there and uh, it just seemed like another reason for us all to be together and play music and have fun which is fine and all but I remember at one point it being disappointing uh, as far as um, trying to change some some ideas and some minds but you know Mike had done a good job about you know having um, an information table or two out front so people could visit and talk about you know this the state of equality at the time. And, um, but I, I remember it, it, at that point, just, I think I said something that was, yeah, this is a really fun tour, but it, it's really not different than any other tour. And I, we had hoped that there would, there would be more substance. What kind of things would you guys say on stage addressing the, you know, anti-racism? You know, I, I don't, it's been so long. I, I can remember, I can't even remember what we would say, but I do remember that when Bob had a, sh- uh, a speech, a short speech where he would talk about what was happening. And, um, you know, it's been such a long time. I, 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 I'd have a hard time even trying to say what, what he was trying to say, but, but he, you know, uh, Bob's a smart guy and he can be eloquent uh, at times, especially when he's saying something he knows something about. So um, I'm sure it was it was to the point and it was good at what it was. I think I still remember that he was kind of and I think we talked about this in the van quite a bit uh, and kind of agreed that this was the message for him to send, which was kind of just staying involved in your community and not just being a bystander and actually, you know, um, trying to do something about what you saw on a day to day basis, because he came from that. Bob came from that background as a community organizer. Um, he had, he had, he had that job after college for a while. Mm-hmm. So that was important. It was important to him to get that message out and all of us. Interesting. Yeah. There in the, I think in that same article, you mentioned a, um, incident in Phoenix where you were talking about Martin Luther King's. Oh God. Yes. Oh yeah. I think it was maybe the, I don't know if it was Martin Luther King's birthday or the day he was assassinated. Yeah. Assassination. Yeah. Yeah, so it was what is that? April eighth, April fourth, somewhere in there. Um, um, I remember saying something about it, and the crowd reaction was like we were booed. 
<laughs> for saying something about it. it was shocking to me to be on that tour and say something and it wasn't like i wasn't going off on a you know a long speech or anything about it i think i was just recognizing the day and uh, i remember that show it was an outdoor show and it was just being like ugly at the time and i believe um you know arizona's reputation right around then might not have been so stellar either um oh yeah it just triggered some bad memories for me. Yeah, the kids the kids wanted to hear less than Jake. That was that was the bottom line. So yeah, so less than Jake were um, on an upward trajectory during this tour, right? Oh yeah, the tour was all about them. It was all about them for sure, and not and not not in a bad way. But I mean, they were they were just they they had their MTV exposure and yeah, and uh, they were just becoming uh, a real force to be reckoned with and, and the kids were just going nuts for it in defense of ska will return in a moment hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Plea for Peace happens another year or two later. Um, and you guys do that. Um, Mike, I know Mike feels a little bit better about Plea for Peace. When I talked to Chaz, he felt like, Plea for Peace was a better version or felt more in line with what it was supposed to be. What's your feelings about, what are your guys' feelings about the Plea for Peace tour at, compared to the Ska Against Racism tour experience? That's, a, that's kind of a tough one because uh, to, to, I think from, from, from my perspective, um, I, I think Mike's goal with that, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, was really just to, to raise the money uh, to fund, fund the foundation, right? I mean, I think... Um, and whatever he could do to to you know use those resources down the road, uh, that's kind of what I remember the most about it. To be honest with you, I, I don't I don't know that you know it, it was more or less impact at, at the day of the show. I, I know that you know it was probably an easier message for people to digest. I mean, who's, who's against peace, right? But um, um, I, I don't remember it being quite the same. Uh, you know, specific focus on a thing other than this idea that that Mike wanted to you know b- build up a foundation. The the thing that I thought was really cool about Plea for Peace as opposed to Scoggins Racism is that it was all Asian Man Records bands, right? And I remember there was a, a canned food drive, so there was there was at least that. But then I also remember we're all starving anyways, and so I remember Mike eating some of the chili. <laughs> just going like what i'm gonna take this one can i'm hungry hungry. and and then the other thing i remember is i was i was um stage managing that tour for nine dollars a day i think or seven dollars a day and (laughs) so i was loading everybody's gear into the venue every day and the worst thing to have to carry was um dave's dave's bass head it was so heavy (laughs) <laughs> like unreasonably heavy. Like I've never, I don't know. Like one of you is going to have to ask Dave, like, did he have bricks in the case? 
<laughs> you was, might be you might be mistaking this for Chaz's Leslie. Oh, maybe it was maybe it was that. Maybe that's why it was so heavy. It was a giant Leslie speaker that Chaz ended up uh, sawing in half to make it easier for us to load in and out. <laughs> true, yeah, he really did. True, true. Yeah. The other thing I remember about that tour is um, you guys weren't allowed to play the Gilman show. Oh yeah, because you were signed to a, signed to a, a major at that we, point. We were signed to a major at that point. Yeah, that was that was uh, we did that tour in between finishing the post wave and the post wave actually being released. And yeah. Bitchy yeah. ended up playing yeah. instead of of us. And I I went down to Santa Barbara to see my then girlfriend, who's now my wife. So that's I don't I was not at that show. That sucked. Yeah, we lasted we lasted one more day on that tour, and then we were all so burnt that we dropped off for the last couple of days. Yeah, plea for peace happened multiple years, so I think that the intent behind plea for peace was changing year to year, um, in terms of what it was being fundraised for and and what kind of awareness was being happening. I know, like, you know, like later in the in the mid two thousands, there was one that was specifically about getting people to vote. Um, so anyways, there was, yeah, the plea for peace, I don't think had a one specific thing in mind. You know, I got to hand it to Mike Park, you know, from the early years and even until today, he, he still continues to just beat down that door, you know, and, and just to, to talk about, you know, equality and, and racism and, you know, fairness with everybody. And he still continues to do that, you know, he, for decades. Yeah. And, 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 you know, as successful or unsuccessful as some of those tours or some of the records or some of his ideas that he's had, he's, he's stuck to his guns and, and said it all his years. And I, nothing but kudos to Mike Park for like, just continuing to like try to change minds. So you, this was probably bef- before Scott Against Racism, but you guys play, you opened for Real Big Fish and Goldfinger on tour? Yeah. Okay, so this was before that, right? Before Sean? You want to talk about scaring kids again here? Yes, let's talk about what was that like for the audience? <laughs> it, was ter- it was terrifying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> terrifying for the audience. You know, for us, it was like, oh, wow, we get to go on tour with these bands that are on MTV, and they'll, there'll be lots of people there, and we'll open up. And, um, you know, it might be like half of a house at the time. Or usually when we play, it'd be filled because they'd sell out every single show. And uh, yeah, you know, we would get, you know, um, 10 people at every show that would just be like, whoa, I just, I, and you just changed my life and my perspective. And I didn't know that a band could even, could do that. And then, you know, 90% of the people just came there to like, have a good time. Nothing wrong with that. That's what entertainment is. But um, that's what it was like with Goldfinger and Real Big Fish. You know, they were just like, you know, they're just, it's pop music. Um, and people like pop music and yeah i i don't even know what our i don't know how we got on that tour or what our role was was just i mean that's a rick bondy thing right there for sure he booked both those bands so i'd imagine after 30 minutes of us that when (laughs) real big fish took the stage people were like thank god (laughs) life life isn't so bad you know and it's probably great for them. We probably really contributed to their merchandise. The <laughs> <laughs> just drove people out to the lobby, right? <laughs> uh, we, we did have a great time with them. I remember um, 
having so many great moments with both of those bands. But, you know, there was always a time for us, you know, riding to the next show uh, or after a show, you know, when you're on stage and you're looking down at, you know, a, a thousand terrified kids looking up at you and then you get to go to the next place. Like, you know, how can we like, how can we reach more people or, you know, or, or should we? And and always the answer for us, well, let's just be even more. Yeah. Let's be, let's be faster. Let's be more angry. And that's just kind of the way we kept going. Thinking about it, we probably needed like George Harrison or something like in the van with us to help mellow us out a little bit. <laughs> so you got a little weirder and a little scarier on the, as you progressed through that tour. We watched uh, every band we ever played with move on to, um, you know, major or nominal success mm-hmm. and trying to write great music and interesting music and experimental music and, and music with substance and breaking down walls and barriers. And it doesn't work when you're like paying the bills. So it just made us angrier. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. When Postwave came about, we had to do a, a full refresh. We had to be like, forget it all. Let's just start over and let's just turn it down and start again. So Postwave, okay, so Rick Bondi, we already kind of mentioned this. Rick Bondi, he got a job at MCA and um, they all respected him for all his work he had done with, in, in getting ska bands bigger and working with ska bands kind of early before it kind of took off. So... He said, "Blue meanies, obviously." You're next. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they and-, yeah, and and not 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 just the ska bands, but Blink 182 was a, a was a Rick was a Rick phenomenon, and he was on top of them way before anybody else, and and they had blown up huge, and that that was probably that and Sublime, you know, those two bands yeah. probably were what really got Rick at MC. Yeah, and he also had Goldfinger um, and Real Big Fish too. So. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think, you know, to your point, like sublime, when he had sublime, they were not popular. So he had, he was early on them and same with blink blink one eighty two. So, right. Um, so I'm guessing that MCA just said whatever you want to do, Rick, cause they probably would not have signed you otherwise. That seems like, that seems like that's what we saw. They trusted Rick before his reputation. Mm-hmm. He had a track record. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. I I, I have no compunction saying that because Rick just decided, you know, go for it. I, I think that was his mentality about a lot of stuff, um, you know, as well as I know him. I think that was that was the thing that I, I remember about him is like, just put it out there and do it. And we were a risk. There's no doubt about it. We were a risk to put on a major label, but he believed in us. He believed that we could do what, uh, you know, a major label would want, which is to sell records. Right. And, um, you know, we, we thought it was a big challenge. I mean, I think me coming in at that point <clears throat> in time, these guys were already talking about like trying to change up the sound a little bit. And and maybe that had been some friction with Mike too. I don't know, but um, you know, I was open to the idea of like, well, let, let, yeah, let's try to write some more, you know, listener friendly music and see how that works out. And I think just having that attitude, everybody in the band was there and we all kind of were, were ready to do that and, and see if we could make it work. Mm. So Rick was, Rick was the one who convinced, you know, Gary Ashley, the A&R head of A&R there and uh, Jay Boberg, the president of MCA to, to take a, take a leap on it. 
Tell me a little bit about the deal. I mean, I've, I've read your statement um, about, uh, I think it was the statement that Billy wrote, but then I also read that you wrote it with him, Sean, about getting like, Sean wrote it. Sean wrote it. Okay. So, but it was your name on it. Yeah, yeah I wrote it. Listen, Sean wrote it, but it was supposed to just be an email to, to the band. What? <laughs> and we, didn't, we didn't send it to MCA. No, we didn't. No, it, it was, I think what was happening, Bill, was you guys, you and Zach had gotten that delivery of records from uh, the guy at MCA who, rather than throw them away, sent them to you. And we were going to re-release it on Thick. And you guys were going through that process of you know tearing out all the, uh, the artwork and replacing it with Thick branded stuff and you know doing all that. And you, I was sitting in Santa Barbara at a terrible temp job. And I think you sent me an email and said, can you write a press release? And I said, yeah, sure. And I sat down to write it and I, I was just pissed off. I was just like, this, this fucking sucks. Why am I writing this press release now? So I, I just got snotty about it. And, and I, I wrote it as a joke. I, I meant like, that was supposed to be like an inside joke because I couldn't come up with something that was like, yay, we're putting out our record on thick now instead of MCA. I was just kind of bitter. Um, so that's the tone of that, that, um, open letter, quote unquote, and it, we sent it around, and it was circulated among the band. And I think some people in the band were like, I, "I don't think this should actually go out in the world." And Bill and Zach, I think, just saw it and just ran with it, and it and it forwarded it on to other people. Am I am I wrong about that? You guys were sending it off to different different people. So yeah, Sean sent it. Sean's Sean has always been great at like sending like ridiculous emails that seem like legal copy and uh so that was part of the joke you know sean was were you now sherman xavier at the time yeah whatever yeah, yeah so yeah. it's yeah. it supposed to be an internal joke with the band it's like an email that was copied with the band and so i'm working in the thick offices i shared it with zach einstein zach einstein saw the potential of it and shared it to the velvet rope, which was like some yes, sort of like yeah. thread, like industry thread in LA, some bullshit. And, uh, and they ran with it. And, and then when that got posted, I remember telling Zach, no, nah, that's not for the public. <laughs> and it came down, it came down for a second. And the lady from the velvet robe called me and was really grilling me to ask if, you know, we had written that or not or something. And I, and I was just like, it was really like, a, it was an intense conversation. Anyway, it got out there and, you know, the rest is history. But the original intent of that letter was just supposed to be between us. And it was just supposed to be an internal joke. And it just went from there. Did you, so did you really get a half a million dollars? The, the original deal, I think, was uh, $350. Uh, the seven year deal was like, I don't know, $7 million or something like that. And um, of course, we never got to the second record. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, really, I got to hand it to MCA. Like, we, you know, we got paid. As Sean was saying earlier, we went down to Chaz's house and we, we wrote music all day and drank beer and played Goldeneye. You know, it was awesome. You know, it was, it was, it was a dream come true. And we, uh, we bought an RV and we bought new gear and we bought recording gear. And we were finally after, I don't know, 10, 10 plus years, it was happening. 
this is like this is everything that we had, had ever hoped for and of course that didn't and we you know we did get to write songs for a long time and work with some great songwriters and producers and record the record demo it and record it and it got, came out and all the things it was awesome so rick left the mca is that is that what happened or was there anything else that happened no, I'm not exactly totally sure. I think Rick was, he left MCA or he was like, he was going to go travel for a while. And um, he didn't like living in LA for sure. Yeah. And there was, um, you know, when you're, I've said this before, but, you know, for any bands out there, I don't even know if record deals even exist anymore as the way they did then. But if you get a record deal or anything you're ever doing, you have to have someone there for you that it's your cheerleader that, that is going to come to work every day. And they're going to, they're going to work on the blue meanies. They're going to like, we can make this happen. Yeah. When, when Rick left, that, that was it. There was no one telling the, the, the MCA intern or the, you know, the MCA executive to like work on blue meanies. So I think we just got, uh, pushed to the side so they could focus on uh, Shaggy. I think Shaggy was a big thing at the point. That was it. Yeah, it, it Wasn't Me was was breaking as a huge hit right around the same time that we put out the post wave. I think maybe a couple weeks apart. Yeah. Uh, those records came out and, uh, we're, you know, if you're a large record label with lots of resources and you have the Blue Meanies over here with these weird little pop songs that we were writing and you have over here Shaggy with mainstream pop you know what are you going to focus on shaggy if you're yeah, yeah. right totally. <laughs> um anyway i'm working i'm working on a record right now with shaggy uh, <laughs> we're both in the same spot yeah <laughs> so you the album was released and then they didn't push it it didn't do you know what they wanted and so what happened they they did push it at the beginning it was it was um yeah we would go to shows and there'd be like poster displays and record, you know, execs would come out and record uh, stores would be there. It was good. It was really good. We thought we were doing a great job. And uh, we thought yeah. right out of the gate, it was doing well. And there was like the alternative uh, radio charts. We were like in the top 20 and it seemed great. And then it was, um, and then the next great thing that happened was we were going to go on a sold out national tour with Floggy Molly. We were on cloud nine. We went to LA. We played maybe, I don't know, a couple shows at the Whiskey or the Trucadero or something, and then went down further to Southern California and played a couple another show or so. And they were all like huge sold out shows with Floggy Molly. We were on Cloud Nine, but the only thing that was missing is nobody from MCA was at those shows. Hmm. Kind of weird. Huh. And I swear I swear to you, the moment we crossed over into the state of Arizona we got the call from Adam Katz and said they had dropped us. So, you know, you got to put yourself in our shoes. You know, Sean and I are like in the van, like we just got dropped. And now we're, we're just getting out on a, how, how many weeks national tour with Floggy Molly, who was just on, just turning huge. All the shows were great. And we knew, we knew deep inside that when this tour was over, even if we made it through the tour, that it was done. Well, Jim had Jim had already uh, decided he was going to quit too. Jimmy Flame had, had told us at the start of that tour. He said, "Guys, I think I'm done. I think this is my last. This is my last hurrah." And that that was another like just deflation of the balloon. Like, what are we going to do? You know, this key member of the band who'd been been there for you know most of the life of it was about to walk away, and it's such an important part too. Yeah, 
yeah it's gone so they just gave you the they just gave you the masters man i don't know how this works out sometimes when i tell the story i don't know what's going on (laughs) (laughs) I'm, i'm waiting for a lawyer to show up at my door but Basically, so we just got dropped and nobody cared anymore. And I don't have the masters. I don't think any any of us has the tape. They probably got chucked. We made that part up. That was that was a that was a, a fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't, we didn't get, all we got we got a bunch of boxes of CDs. That's what we got back. We did get a pal, we got like ten thousand CDs showed up at Thick Records. I bet the masters are probably still at Studio Four. Uh, in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, where we recorded the record, which uh, I think Phil Nicola has since uh, sold the studio to somebody else. But um, yeah, that's probably where they are. They're probably in the in the vault down there. But um, but Thick reissued it. Really, the story is true. The, the palette of CDs came out, came, and interns disassembled them and put new art <laughs> into <laughs> really? into the back. Yeah, look at you can see an. The art is the exact same. It's just the the label is different. It's one said MCA and one said thick. If you open the CD up, <laughs> the CD itself and the main booklet still says MCA. So you never, there was no contract like authorizing them to do this? No. <laughs> no, no way. So, well, I don't think anybody cared. Now you also no. have to remember that you have to think about the state of the music industry at that time. We were possibly the last band to sign, you know, what would be considered a regular deal at the time. Right after that, the 360 deal came into play and digital, you know, came out. So the entire industry at that time failed and, and had to rewrite itself, you know, and I don't even know the, how that, how that ended up unfolding, but that's what was happening at that very time. Okay. So they had a bigger fish to fry basically. Yeah. They just didn't care. We don't know. Yeah. They didn't care. If they cared, they would have sued us. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they they, they were done with us. We were in the dustbin as far as they were were concerned. (laughs) They were like, is there any chance that one of these songs could be a huge hit someday? And they're like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) So because you had these boxes of CDs, you had thick sell them. Is that why? So I, uh, the band ended, Zach asked me to go to work for him, which was work for me. I was like, this is awesome. I work for a record label. And, uh, yeah, we just continued. I just, I went to work and he, he pushed those CDs out, you know, through his distribution channels. I see. And there was no, there was no band playing any shows. But you had all these CDs. All you had to do was put a new label on them. Yeah. I had some in my garage too. You know, if you want any. (laughs) (laughs) I throw those up online. I'm sure there's people out there who want them. Nah. But but still in all, I bet, you know, I'm not just tooting my own horn here, but I bet uh, still in all, the Postway probably sold better than the other records just because it was more widely available for the first time. I mean, it was actually, you know, first of all, the Universal Distribution put it out there. So it was in record stores around the country. And then Zach had a national distribution deal for Thick. So, I mean, it got back out there again. And now it's out there. I, I don't even know who. I think Zach has put it up on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. And you know, it's not like we make any money off of that, but it's just it's still out there for people to enjoy if they want to hear it. So you've done a few Riot Fest reunions over the years. Um, yes. I'm curious about my question for about that is, um, it seems like you get good billing and 
good support behind you? Is is there somebody at Riot Fest that's a big Blue Meanies fan? What's what's going on there? Yeah, Mike Petrushin, who is the you know the brains behind Riot Fest, was a, a longtime fan. Okay, and that's basically he. Uh, you know, he's he's made a great reputation of trying to get bands to like you know get together and play again at his events, and we're we're one of them. So basically, that's how that's how it happened. We did the second Riot Fest in two thousand six, and that was at the was it at the at the Congress, right, Bill? Yes, second. I want, yeah, I want to say, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that was Naked Raygun was the other kind of get that he you know got back together for that, and so that was our. I think that was our second show back after we had broken up the first time, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it's so it's like, you know, Riot Fest does put together bands and stuff, but it doesn't always feel like it's an important band to them, per se. It's just, you know, this is going to be good for their audience. But in the case of Blue Meanies, it's an important band for the people behind Riot Fest. Yeah, Mike really wanted to see it happen. And uh, it was great for him because he, you know, we're all spread around the country and he he made it work for us where we could all get to Chicago ahead of time and uh, rehearse ahead of time and then be able to play the shows. You know, you know, May, if you think about it, us getting together and playing the music that we wrote, it's not easy, you know, so there there has to be some time for us to be together to be able to to practice. Yeah, so how how long would you rehearse for these uh Riot Fest shows? I think we put the we put the sound the set list together months ahead of time and personally for me um I had a, at the time I had a small venue here where I live and I would uh, just play a, play a CD on the PA and just sing along to it for months ahead of time just to get ready. Yeah, I think Sean, Dave, and Bob, they were all in Madison or Chicago, and they would get together and they would play a little bit. But the whole band would come together three days before the performance and, uh, and then just try to practice. But it was important that everybody do their homework ahead of time. Mm. Not only be able to play the songs, but be able to have the endurance and the agility to do it. Yeah, that's the hard. That's that's the harder part as you as you get older and as you not you're not doing that on a regular basis. That the stamina that it takes to play, you know, songs at 190 beats a minute, um, mm-hmm. you know, pumping pumping your arms that way, or your or if you're a drummer, especially, you know, for Bob, that's that's a that's a physical feat, you know, when you're in your early 50s. <laughs> so yeah. that's tough. That's tough. You know. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of ska you will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode and access to the in defense of ska discord in defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well co-host adam davis has an amazing band called omnigon 
Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.